This week on Myths and Legends, we're continuing the stories of the Mabinogion with the story of two kings who just want to be best buds and all the nobles and family on either side who would rather see total war than let that happen. The creature this time is not the brightest. I mean, when you eat someone carrying the only magical weapon that can kill you without chewing them first, you can't really be surprised by the consequences. This is Myths and Legends, episode 181b, with friends like these. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, we started the Mabinogion, set in 11th century Great Britain in Ireland, Today's story is barely related to last week's, with only the setting and the name drop of only one character connecting the two. The collection is a group of legends, set in Wales in the Middle Ages, but today's story won't start in Great Britain, but in Ireland, with the King of Ireland taking some me time. Mithalo was taking a break from his hunting trip. He was sitting atop a mound overlooking the Lake of the Cauldron. It was a beautiful spring day in Ireland, his kingdom, and he was grateful for a chance to get away from it all, do some hunting on his own, and just relax. Then, of course, the lake started bubbling. He pulled his bow from his back and knocked an arrow. His men were somewhere else in the forest. He didn't know if they'd be able to hear him if he yelled. Whatever emerged it will be up to him to deal with it. It could be a dragon, a serpent, some monster from when the world was young, or it could be just an ugly guy with a cauldron sling over his back. King Mithalo relaxed. Huh. The man had a shock of yellow-red hair on his head and was pretty monstrous, though the king didn't feel threatened for whatever reason. The man was probably a whole head taller than the king, and carried a heavy iron cauldron on his back. When he made it to the shore, he was completely dry, and he looked back to the water. If the man was large, the woman, his wife that followed him, was twice his size. The pair looked to the forest, and then started off. When they passed the king sitting on the mound, they noticed him for the first time. The man and woman nodded at him. The king nodded back, and with a smile, asked, how are things going for you? The man, not breaking eye contact, said, In a month and a fortnight this woman will conceive, and a boy born of that pregnancy in a month and a fortnight will be a fully armed warrior. The king blinked. Uh, cool. Good, good for you guys. I meet a lot of people, but that's honestly the most interesting answer I've ever received for a polite greeting. Honestly, it's the 11th century, and we need as many warriors as we can get. You guys got any place to go? You want to come live with me in the castle? The man and woman just stood there, staring at him. He looked back and forth. What? So is that a... When are we going? The man barked, and the king shot up. A yes, then. Cool. All right, yeah. Let's head home.
So, promise of free warriors notwithstanding, it's generally a bad idea to take the already abrasive evil-looking giants emerging magically from a lake and make them your roommates. At the end of two years, there were eight more warriors who were full-grown and a rival to any in Mythalos' court. And there were also a lot of problems. When the group, now numbering 10 total, hung around the castle, they were slovenly, verbally and physically abusive to anyone but the king, and just terrible. It was even worse when they traveled the countryside. At least in the castle, Mytholo could contain the damage to, you know, everyone and everything he cared about. When they traveled the countryside, they burned down forests and villages just for fun, robbed people on the road, and did not wash their hands after using the bathroom, but were like super proud about it and would get all indignant if you said anything. It came to a head one day when Mythalo found himself in his wine cellar, the only room not blaring with a Nickelback album that the giants left on repeat. He entered the room and found himself surrounded by angry nobles. He turned back to his servant. There wasn't a Sunday bar down here at all. This was a trick. The servant apologized and closed the door behind him. The lead noble stepped forward. Up there, it was too much. They were too much. They were out of control. The parents, their kids, they were monsters. The king had a choice. Either they left or the king left. And then they also left. Basically, if the king didn't give the order to get them out of here, the nobles were going to overthrow the king. Nothing personal. He was a nice guy and a good king. But these people had to go. The king agreed. He said that just last week, he had to be tough. He went up to them and said that maybe they should possibly get their own place sometime in the near future, or something. To quote Ned Flanders Sr., he had tried nothing, and he was out of ideas. The nobles looked at each other. Oh, they were so glad they were all on the same page. All right, well, this was easy. If the king was on board, they'd just send some warriors up there to toss the giant's belongings out on the lawn and kick them out. Done and done. Well, they're dead, the noble said, wiping a bloody nose. King Mytholos shrugged. Well, I mean, these things happen. Want to get the power washer and clean out the rooms they were squatting in? The noble shook his head. Oh, the king misunderstood. The warriors were dead. All of them. The giants were fine. In fact, they seemed happier after killing a whole bunch of guys. We're in trouble. And they were. After that the giants realized that they weren't welcome, but no one could physically make them leave. So things somehow got worse. King Mytholo treaded even more lightly than he had, but then he came to a final, inescapable conclusion. The giants needed to party. They drunk yet? King Mithalo asked. Pacing, he didn't like this. He did not like this at all. They spent a few months building the house, and another few weeks calling in all the smiths in Ireland to bring as much coal as they could. The house was made completely out of iron and nearly covered in coal, a detail that the man, his wife, and all of their full-grown death children must have missed in their mad dash to free drinks and half-priced appetizers. When they were in, they were so busy guzzling wine 
that they didn't notice the door slam shut. The iron bar locked the door made of iron, and things start to get a bit toasty. Outside, all the smiths in Ireland worked the bellows to get the coals up to temperature fast enough. It said that they worked two bellows to a smith, though in writing that, I don't actually know how that worked. Like, were they laying on the ground working the bellows or using their feet? Regardless, the room got hot, and the giants inside began to notice. King Mithala felt bad, bad that it had to end this way, so he turned around and took a walk, getting far enough away so he couldn't hear the pounding until it stopped. Looking out, once again on the countryside, far away from the iron house they had built, he breathed and heard a boom. He turned and saw the man and his wife sprinting toward the sea, a massive hole in the side of the iron house. The man's security cauldron, the item he never went anywhere without, slung over his shoulder. There was a short window inside the iron house. When the walls were hot enough to be weakened, but everyone didn't immediately burst into flames, the father and mother saw that window and charged through a wall, leaping over the flames. They no doubt stopped, dropped, and rolled on the grass before turning back. Their sons were now in flames. They were beyond saving. King Mithalo breathed when the pair went the other way, toward the sea. They obviously had some sort of magical power. They'd be fine, or not. He really didn't care all that much, as long as they weren't stinking up his guest rooms. Time went on, and Mithalo heard news from across the sea, from the island of Great Britain. They had a new high king. Mithalo turned to his nobles. Look, he messed up with those people who lived here for two years harassing everyone. How about they sailed over to Great Britain and talked to the king? Who was it? Bran? Wait, Bran. What, how, do you, how do you get the throne? Does like he have the best story? Anyway, King Bran had a sister. Bran went. Mithala floated the idea that he should go seek her hand in marriage. His nobles agreed, and so they sailed east. They found King Bran sitting on a rock overlooking the sea. He was easy to spot, because he was pretty massive. There were no houses that were big enough to hold him. King Mithala came ashore, announced his intention, and with a smile and a handshake, the King of Ireland was marrying the King of Great Britain's sister. The wedding took place in a tent, because once again, Bran can't fit inside houses, and Mithalo and Bran spent the night together. Everything was good. So, why were Mithalo's horses missing their lips, ears, and tails? It was a horror scene when he went to round up his horses to get them back on the boats. Someone, in the night, had come and cut off the horse's lips, ears, tails, and when they could manage it, the horse's eyelids, which is a sadistic level of commitment. My lord, one of Mithalo's nobles boomed. This is an insult, and it was done deliberately. Mithalo nodded. Yeah, I mean, obviously, right? It was obviously an insult. Horses don't just lose their eyelids. Still, it doesn't make sense. I just married into their family, and now they insult me like this? Insult me first. Save all the extra steps. Still, we should go, the nobles said. 
Mythalo agreed. Yeah. Bummer. Pran seemed like a cool brother, too. All right, let's get the ships ready. When he saw the ships being prepared, Bram bounded out. He stopped Mithalo. This was a mistake. He was sorry. He had figured out the truth of what happened. Once he caught his breath, he explained that his half-brother, Evashen, had some feelings about not being consulted regarding the sister's wedding. So he took out that frustration on the horses. The guy was pretty messed up, obviously, but he was Bran's brother. Of course, Bran didn't want to insult Mithalo. He loved Mithalo. Why would he insult him after he brought him into the family? That's what I was saying, Mithalo beamed. Ah, this was so good to hear. Bran didn't want Mithalo to go away angry, but he also couldn't kill his half-brother. This wasn't Shakespeare. What if Bran gave Mithalo a rod of silver as thick as his little finger and as tall as himself and a plate of gold the size of his own face? Huh? Huh? Mithalo smiled, but his nobles cleared their throats. He sighed and looked to the ground. Okay, okay, just to sweeten the pot. How about... I throw in a pot, Bronze said. He snapped his fingers, and the messengers took off. It's a cauldron, but a special one. If someone is killed, if you throw them in there, the next day, or I guess even in a couple minutes, they will be alive again. I mean, they won't ever be able to speak again, but they'd be alive, so what do you say? Mithalo stepped forward. That cauldron, that sounded familiar. He explained all about the man and his wife he last saw swimming across the Irish Sea toward Great Britain, and Bran lit up. So Mithalo knew them. They were good people. Well, that was a bit much. They had super strong kids every 90 days, and as long as they were as far away as humanly possible, they were mostly tolerable. They were so happy that Bran was giving them castles and junk, and not setting them on fire for some reason, that they gave him this cauldron. Mithalo swallowed hard and looked around him. They aren't, they aren't here, are they? Bran shook his head. I mean, they were kind of everywhere. They had a kid every 45 days, so their family manned every fort from here to Scotland. Anyway, what do you say? Take the magic cauldron and silver and gold and don't start a blood feud over what my psychopathic half-brother did to some horses? Huh? Mithalo took Bran's hand. Deal. We'll see how everything is fine and all Mythalo's nobles are cool with how things went down in Wales, but that will be right after this. A year later, in Ireland, Mythalo was feeling good. His wife, Bramwen, was beloved by the people. He had a great working relationship with Great Britain. No squatters were wrecking his house and harassing his nobles. He even had a son with Bramwen, named Guern. Things were great, and it was finally time for that Sunday bar in the wine cellar. Oh, come on, again? Mithalo stomped as he found another room full of angry nobles. They informed their king that they were not happy with how he had been treated by King Bran in Wales. It was an insult, what happened to the horses and he ended his trip partying with Bran 
taking the man's sister back and proudly showing her off to his people? Come on, have some self-respect. Myth Hollow threw up his hands. He didn't want a war. Besides, Bram was a good guy. What would they have him do? The lead noble nodded. They would have him do the honorable thing. Force his wife to work as a slave and be physically abused daily by a butcher. Mithalo stood. That's the honorable thing? Okay, well, here's his answer. No, that was it. This was his wife and the mother of his son. This conversation was over, and the next time he gets called down here, there better be a Sunday bar. The nobles, though, would not go quietly. They go to King Mithalo's half-siblings and to taunting him. The nobles brought up his willingness to capitulate to whatever Bram requested. And most frightening of all, they started to foment rebellion among the common people. Mithalo had been beloved, but now he and Bram Wang couldn't go out in the streets without hearing someone shouting at them. Finally, Mithalo hung his head and gave the lead noble a nod. Bram Wang was wrenched from the throne room, tossed in the kitchen. When she looked at the kneading trough, she looked back to the butcher. And what did he expect her to do with this? She was a queen. He grinned, his hands still slimy with the remains of the animal he had just cut. He slapped her on the side of the head and pointed to the trough. Queen? Not down here she wasn't. Queen Bramwen got a cot to sleep on, it was horribly uncomfortable, but she was forced to work from sunup to sundown, so she was too tired to notice. The butcher's visits were a daily occurrence. No matter how hard she worked or slacked, he would come and box her on the ear, leaving blood and bits of animals in her hair. Meanwhile, communication between Wales and Ireland broke down, because it was completely halted. The Irish put an embargo on Great Britain. No one was allowed to sail for Great Britain, and if anyone from the island landed on Ireland, they were thrown in the dungeons, never allowed to sail back to Wales, lest Bran find out what happened to his sister. If you're thinking maybe not enslaving and abusing the queen on a daily basis might have been a better course of action, well, you're now more skilled at international diplomacy than Mytholo's nobles. The years passed with only the approved messaging getting out to Britain, but in the meantime, Bran was making a friend. She had found the nest of starlings outside her window in the tower. The mother had abandoned the egg, so Bramwen took it in. When the starling hatched, being the only creature Bramwen had to talk to, Bramwen spoke to it for half of each night, and in a matter of a few years, the bird began to talk back. It became Bramwen's only friend, and would flit around the city and palace, stealing things for the queen. The time came when the princess had a request that would change both islands forever. A pencil and paper. Bramwen rolled up the tiny note, tied it to the starling's leg, and told the bird where to find her brother. The bird flapped aloft, told his friend to stay strong, and fluttered off into the afternoon sky. He says there's a forest on the sea. A mountain, too. One of King Mithala's messengers told him of the man just outside of his throne room. He's a peasant, though, so... Want me to just, like, call him some names and send him away? 
Mithlo narrowed his eyes. Now, let's see what this riddle means. It's not a riddle, the peasant said to his king. I saw a forest on the sea and a mountain with two lakes. I mean, you guys want to go see for yourself? We're kind of like in Dublin. We're really close to the sea. King Mytholo waved his hand and told the servant to call this peasant some names and dismiss him while they pondered this inscrutable riddle. Once again, not a riddle, the peasant said. I probably don't have the words to describe the magnitude of what I witnessed, but you should really, really send someone to check this out. This feels very important. But Spears nudged him from the room and kept him from saying anything else to the king. No one could figure out the riddle. So eventually, they started casting their net a little wider and brought in Pramwen, who, when she heard the riddle, laughed. Yeah, that wasn't really a riddle. The peasant was right. He didn't have the words to describe the magnitude of what he saw. The forest was the sea choked with ships, masts all around. The mountain was her brother. The guy who was too big for houses was also, unsurprisingly, too big for boats. He was the mountain, and the lakes the peasant described were his eyes. Really? He's that big that he can just walk across the Irish Sea? It gets down to like a thousand feet deep in places, Mithala remarked. Bramwen nodded. Yeah, size is pretty variable in these old stories. The main takeaway here is that he's big, and that he's coming for you. Mithala turned to his nobles. All right, run away then? They were already packing. They retreated back across the Liffey and destroyed the bridges behind them. But when Bran simply laid down and made himself a bridge over which his men could cross, he received a messenger from Mithalo. You, you guys want to do some peace? He had terms. Gwern, son of Bramwen and Mithalo, would be king of all Ireland. That went without saying. He said that Bran would have to fight down to the last person on Ireland if he tried to conquer the island. It's better that Mithalo's son and Bran's nephew sit on the throne. Bran shook his head. After the way Mithalo had treated his sister, that was what he was going to do? Do what he was going to do anyway? He needed more. Mithalo's messengers returned. All right, all right. He was mad. Mithalo could see that. But how would Bran like to experience something really special? How would he like to experience, wait for it, indoors. Bran narrowed his eyes. He was listening. You had some beautiful horses, Evishen remarked to Mithalo. Emphasis on had, the king of Ireland sneered. Bran was on his way. He hadn't come himself to inspect the massive house that the king of Ireland had built him, but sent the man who had started all of this, his half-brother, Evashen, who had mutilated Mithalo's horses when he had married Bramwen. Evashen nodded. Nice, nice, all good. You guys built this in record time. My brother will be very happy. One question, though. What are those? He gestured at the hide bags that hung on pegs on every one of the house's 200 pillars. Mithalo swallowed. A housewarming gift from his nobles to King Bran. 200 bags of flour. Evashen cocked his head. How generous. He waited for a chair, and one of his servants brought one. But what are you doing? 
Mithalo asked. The brother of King Bran simply smiled. He was just taking a look at the gift to the king. He wanted to see how fine the Irish flower was. Standing atop the chair, Evashen took a small knife and opened the top of the bag, sliding his hand in. Fine, fine, very nice. Oh, oh my. Mithala swallowed. But what was it? Evashen said that he found a big lump. Oh, that's too bad. He smiled. Still, he wanted Bran to enjoy this gift. Here, he'd help Mithalo work out the lumps. Mithalo shuddered as he heard the muffled screaming of the warrior hidden inside the bag. The clouds of flower dust kicking up as the man struggled, trying to remove Evashen's hand from his head. With a crack, the bag stopped moving. Evashen removed his hand from the flower. Clump with red. Oof, nasty lump that was. But it was gone now. With hollow looked to the ground and said that they should go. Evashen smiled. He was already standing by the second bag. He didn't want to be that guy, but it would be embarrassing for Mithalo if such obvious imperfections were found in his gifts. Let's go around and make sure this was the only one. Shall we? It was not the only one. And 199 struggling bags later, the hall was finally ready. Evashen whistled, and they felt the earth quake beneath their feet. When Bran entered the hall, he nodded. Ah, so this was indoors. Nice. Bran went arrived next, with the young Gwern plodding along beside her. The boy was a toddler, but today he became king of Ireland. The fire burned as Bran smiled, taking a seat next to Mithalo. The pair had been through a lot, but today, all was forgiven. All around the hall, Mithalo's men were cutting down the bags of flour that hung on the pillars. Mithalo nodded. He'd like that. He hated the idea of being at odds with King Bran, mainly because he considered the man a friend, but also mainly because he was the size of a mountain and his army already occupied Mithalo's city. Pran smiled. He was glad things could be settled too. Now, for the reason they were all here, it was on that day that Gwern, son of Mithalo and Pranwen, was made king of Ireland. His father would rule as regent until he came of age. Mithalo saw this for what it was. He was being conquered, slowly, and with his own son. The knife on his throat might be invisible, but it was still there. After the toddler was invested with the rights and responsibilities of the monarchy, the party sat down to a small feast. After the feast, when everyone was relaxing by the fire, they were enchanted by the young Gwern. Everyone who saw the young boy loved him. And he went to his father, to his uncle, to all the men's nobles in attendance, except for Evashen. Maybe he just didn't notice his uncle, Maybe the guy gave off a very threatening, murderous psychopath vibe that the toddler wanted nothing to do with. Regardless, Evashen noticed and asked his sister why his nephew didn't want anything to do with him. Bramwen smiled. It was nothing, she was sure. She turned to Gwern. Go to your uncle Evashen. The boy smiled and ran over. His uncle rose, smiling, picking the boy up and tossing him into the fire. The fire was one of those big ones that had been burning for hours. 
Not only had the servants been tending to it, feeding it new logs, but there was a thick bed of hot coals in the bottom. Guern caught instantly. Evashen smiled. Mithalus stood in shock. Bramwen rushed to her son, but Bran caught her, pulling her back behind a shield. Evashen had once again destroyed any possibility of peace. Mithalo called out that they had been betrayed. Do it. With those words, men came flooding from an unseen portion of the home. Men who had deep red, crack-like scars on their heads. They didn't say anything. They couldn't say anything. They only attacked. The visitors from Britain called out, and their own men poured into the house. The battle had begun. Evashen knew the cauldron was at work when he killed the same man three times. There was a whole team of Irishmen dedicated to finding an Irish corpse and dragging them to the back room for a few minutes to reanimate them and send them back into battle. The British were invaders in this land, so they were already up against overwhelming numbers. If the Irish were coming back, that was it for the British. Evashen knew he had to do something about this cauldron, so he laid down. He found a pile of Irish corpses and wedged himself underneath the top layer. He didn't breathe as the men found him and carried him to the cauldron, the cauldron that had been the gift to Mithalo for what Evashen had done to the horses, the one that came from that weird giant couple at the top of the episode. The cauldron was hot. It had to be hot to work. But Evashen could do this. He could do this for his people so they could have a shot in this war that he needlessly and unilaterally started. As his flesh burned, he found either side of the cauldron, one with his feet and the other with his hands. He pushed, he strained, and finally, it cracked. The iron walls of the cauldron cracked like a clam and fell to the side. Evashen's body had given way, so he knew there was no coming back from this. He collapsed into the fire and laughed as he burned. The battle spilled out from the house they had built for Bran into the countryside until all of Ireland was engulfed in war. Mithala was one of the earlier casualties, leading one of the many charges against the British. In fact, according to this legend, when the fog of war finally dissipated, every man, woman, and child in Ireland, save five pregnant women, had been killed in the war. The attacking British didn't fare much better, if you're wondering how you kill a man the size of a mountain, a single poisoned arrow does the trick, which, yeah, it seems like a massive liability to be the size of a mountain but still be susceptible to the smallest drop of poison. He asked that his countrymen cut off his head. Quickly. They did, and the head of Bran breathed a sigh of relief. Somehow, without lungs. He said that he could live for some time after this. As we all know, the soul lives in the head. But he asked that, when his time came, not his time of death that already came and went, but the time when he finally stopped talking, he should be buried on the shore of Great Britain, facing France, to ward off invasion from the continent. After the death of Bran, only seven people remained alive on the Welsh side, with Pradiri, I remember him from last week, being one of them, along with Taliesin, a famed prophet we talked about a long time ago in the Merlin episode. The seven guys in Bramwen sailed for home, 
with Bronze Head still chatting away to them and telling them fun stories to ease their sorrow, that they landed in Wales, where Bronwen was finally free of her confinement, but bereft of her son, brother, and everyone else she ever cared about. Finally hit by all these things, she died of a broken heart. Some people who returned didn't land in Wales, though. They stopped at an island just off the coast. They couldn't bear to go home after all they had lost. So they stopped off for a night to talk to the head of Bronn. When they left in the morning, after Bronn said his goodbyes and stopped talking, the nobles found that 80 years had passed in that one night. They honored Bronn's final wish and buried his head facing France. And as far as I know, the 11th century is not known for any prominent invasions of Great Britain by kings of the continent. Of note, they buried him on the White Hill of London, which is thought to be the place where the Tower of London now stands. Oh, and before we wrap up, I should say that even though I treated the protagonists in the story today largely like normal people, in many places they're actually gods. I mean, that's not surprising where Bran is concerned, but Bran one is considered a goddess, which also kind of explains the Starling thing. And they and their half-brother are children of Lear, the chief of a whole family of gods that we'll get into at some point. I read in one place that Lear is the very loose inspiration, like name-only inspiration, for King Lear from the play of the same name. We're running into more of the children of the gods who, like in Greek mythology, cause a lot of trouble here on Earth. But that'll be at a later date, when we revisit the Mabinagion. If you like the podcast, we also have a little shop. It's a fun way to help support the show, get cool stuff. And for the first time ever, we're offering something just for graduation. It's a handwritten personal message from us to the graduate in your life. Plus a few bonus gifts. Check out this and the other stuff we make at shop.bardic.fm. The creature this time is the Shita from Hopi folklore. There's bad, and then there's eating children bad. Though a lot of creatures from world folklore do this. So the Sheeta is in good company. Or bad company. The Sheeta, though, while it prefers human children, is not picky and will settle for just about anyone it happens to come across when the children are too well protected. It'll tear its victim limb from limb, eating them right there on the spot. Long ago, the village of Arabi was having an issue with the monster that ate people. No surprise there. So they called upon two magical heroes. Hukong Hoi and his younger brother, Balong Hoi. They consulted with the village chief and found the feathers that, when attached to an arrow, could kill the Shita, the bluebird feather arrows in hand. The brothers found the monster, challenged it, and were promptly eaten. The monster burped and then started having some stomach problems. You see, the heroes wanted to be eaten, betting that the monster wouldn't want to deal with a fight and it would just eat them whole. After taking a no-doubt thrilling water slide down the monster's esophagus, they found the heart from the inside, shot it with the magical arrow, and exited out the dead cheetah's nose to the praise of a thankful village. If you're magical heroes listening to this podcast, hey, good for you being a magical hero. Attacking a creature like this seems like a good idea, providing that it doesn't chew at all or use its usual MO of tearing a human to pieces before consuming them. If you're a monster that eats people listening to this podcast, maybe don't eat fully armed warriors carrying the one weapon that can defeat you. Also, stop it. Stop eating people. I mean, you know other foods exist, right? How much better can a raw human be than like a cheeseburger?
even a not-so-great cheeseburger. Seriously, stop eating people. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to Simply Safe for sponsoring us this week. With all the uncertainty in the world, now is the time to protect your home with Simply Safe. There's no technician or salesperson that needs to come to your home. Just order it online and set it up yourself. You don't need to pay any outrageous monthly fees or sign a two-year contract. Your home is protected 24-7 with emergency dispatch, all for just 50 cents a day. Head to simplysafe.com legends. Get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee at simplysafe.com legends. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Listener.